Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. When Paul was writing those words, he was thinking about the resurrection. The first part of that passage, as we talked about on Wednesday, describes the passion of Christ. The last part that I just read to you describes the exaltation of Christ, which includes and then goes beyond the resurrection of Christ. God exalted him to the highest place because he went all the way down. He came all the way back up. The resurrection had become for the apostle Paul a matter, his words, of greatest importance. Same was true for the rest of the early church. And the reason I point this out is because that's not what we find immediately after Easter Sunday. <coughs> Where were the disciples Sunday night? They were hiding in a room somewhere. They were terrified. Every creak in the hallway suggested to them the advance of the religious leaders or the Romans to take them all the way to prison. They were terrified. They were divided. The idea that Christ had risen from the dead was something that he had told them he would do multiple times. And yet when we meet them on Sunday night, they are terrified. In fact, they've heard from someone who has said they have seen the risen Christ. And you know what they said? The words seemed to them as nonsense. We have this curious phenomenon that the early church, immediately after the resurrection, is frightened. The resurrection for them is nothing more than nonsense. And yet just a short while later, we find the resurrection is of greatest importance. It's, the, it's at the core of their message. One commentator refers to it as, as, as at the heart of the Christian message. They had to pick a disciple to replace Judas. The criteria, the job description of this new 12th disciple, someone who had been a witness of the resurrection. You look in the book of Acts at the sermons preached by the early Christians, and over and over and over again, the, the, the theme of their message, the heart of their message, is the fact that Christ has risen from the dead. One of the most remarkable bits of evidence has to do with the day on which the early Christians worshipped. Remember, they, they're starting within Judaism, so at first they just are worshipping on the Sabbath, on Saturday, but something happens. And shortly into the New Testament period, we find them beginning to worship on Sunday instead. A guy by the name of Justin Martyr, who lived in the mid part of the second century, is explaining what the Christians are doing. Here's what he says about why the Christians are worshiping not on the Sabbath where God had commanded them to worship, but now on Sunday, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world... And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. For the disciples, the resurrection changes everything. It goes from nonsense to being the heart of their message. I mentioned that for Paul, this is a matter of first importance. But those aren't just words for Paul. It really is a matter of first importance. 
Look at uh, verses 3 and 4, 1 Corinthians 15. That's where we're going to be this morning. It's a long chapter, 58 verses. We're not going to read them all. We're going to visit at the beginning and the middle and the end of that passage. But let's start at the beginning. Here's what Paul says. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the heart of Paul's message as it was for the early church. But he goes on. Later in the chapter, he says that unless Christ has raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, your faith is useless, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, that's verse 15. Also, verse 15, Paul and all the other apostles are lying about God. Verse 18, the dead are lost. Verse 19, we are to be pitied more than all people. This is a matter of first importance for Paul and the early church. And so I'm wondering why. What is it about the resurrection that makes this so important? That makes this a matter of first importance? Without the resurrection, all is lost. What is it about the resurrection that's so important? Well, it's not that somebody rises from the dead. Because they'd seen that before. Multiple times, as they followed Jesus around on multiple occasions, he's resurrecting people. So it is not simply the fact that someone has risen from the dead. Stay with me on this passage here and we get a clue. You notice the phrases that I've highlighted there by italicizing them? One is first importance, but the other two are this phrase, Paul repeats it twice in these verses, according to the Scriptures. Now we're getting closer to an answer to the question of what is so important about the resurrection. It is according to the Scriptures. Here again... It's not just that God had fulfilled what he predicted he would do. The disciples had seen that before too. The Gospels are filled with fulfilled predictions, aren't they? But there's something different about this. Here's the way I think it works. When Paul writes that the resurrection is according to the Scripture, he means more than simply that God had predicted Christ would rise from the dead. What Paul is saying when he refers to the resurrection as according to the Scriptures is that the resurrection ties the whole of Scripture together and all of Scripture reaches its consummating moment in this event in Christ's life. Let me explain what I mean. It's that moment in the movie where everything is going wrong where all hope is lost, some event takes place, and we're meant to think, we're, we're led to think that that event is the worst possible. It is actually the, the, the depths to which the plot has gone. All hope is lost. I'm thinking of uh, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe with the witch and the knife and Aslan tied to the stone table. That's got to be the lowest part of that movie. As Aslan, everybody's hope is killed by the witch on the stone table. 
Well, you know the story. It's precisely that moment which changes everything. It looks like it's the worst of all possible things, but it's at that moment that everything changes. This is the resurrection of Christ for the disciples. Let me explain. The whole Bible is about this story of God's reconciling humanity back to himself. The whole Bible. It starts in Genesis in the garden. It moves its way to God calling out the nation of Israel and redeeming them from captivity in Egypt. It moves them into the promised land. The disciples, are, they were raised with this kind of thing. They were raised to think this way. The disciples know the story about how the Israelites find themselves in difficult circumstances and God sends them prophets over and over again. And those prophets speak about a time when God is going to interrupt the course of human history. This day of the Lord God is going to send. And and it's at this moment that God is going to vindicate his people. And so the disciples are raised with this idea that the day of the Lord is coming. One day they hear the news that somebody's out in the wilderness, some weird guy by the name of John who's baptizing people and he's announcing that the, the kingdom of God is upon us. And so they go out, they're curious, they, and they meet this guy. They meet this guy, Jesus. He calls them into fellowship with himself and they wander around with him for several years and, and increasingly they're con- convinced that this is in fact the one the prophets talked about. This is the one who through his miracles and his teaching is actually the one that all the Old Testament is pointing toward. This is it. They have met the Messiah. The King is here. The kingdom of God is among us. And then he dies. He doesn't just die, he's he's crucified. He isn't just crucified, he's crucified by the Romans at the request of the Jews, the very one for whom this is their scriptures. And it's at this moment that the disciples feel like they've been taken for a ride. They thought they had it all figured out. That this Jesus was in fact the king and he was the one toward which all of this has been pointing, but but they must have got it wrong. Because it clearly can't be him. And then he meets them. And everything changes. And you can see why now. Because they had thought that the crucifixion was the end of the story the bitterest of disappointments, when in fact it was the crucial moment in the story. It was the slaying of Aslan on the table. Not the end of the plan, but the perfect consummating moment of the plan. And the resurrection just proves it. This is what it means when Paul says it's according to the Scriptures. The resurrection is that moment when the entirety of Scripture's message becomes clearly confirmed. In fact, the King has come. In fact, the kingdom is among us. And we have him here in our midst. This is what changes everything for the disciples. It's not just that someone rises from the dead. It's not just that God keeps his word. It's that that word is actually fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. 
God has brought redemption to this world. This is what makes the resurrection so important. The resurrection is important because it means that our sins are forgiven. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. This is from Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Our sins are forgiven. This is the way Peter puts it. Praise be, 1 Peter 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Everything's changed. But let's be clear. When I say that the resurrection means that our sins are forgiven, I do not merely mean that you now have your ticket stamped for heaven. You do. But there's more. If in fact the resurrection means God's plan has been accomplished in Christ, then it isn't simply the fact that our sins have been forgiven. It is that the power of sin has been broken. Let's look at several verses. Let's look first here at Romans 1, and then we'll look at Ephesians. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, look at Ephesians chapter 1. I want to expand your understanding of what the cross and the resurrection accomplished. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, there's way more there than I can unpack this morning. Here's what I want you to take away. What Jesus did on the cross and as a result of the empty tomb was to forgive our sins, but it was also to break the power of sin in the world. This is what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the curse having been broken. He put everything under his feet. Listen, sin involves four broken relationships. Sorry if this is review, but just catch up with me. Sin involves a broken relationship between humans and God. Sin involves a broken relationship human to human. Sin in the world produces an intrapersonal alienation. We are alienated from ourselves. We don't like ourselves. That's a consequence of sin and living in a fallen world. It's a result of the curse. 
So we're alienated from God, we're alienated from each other, we're alienated from ourselves, and we're alienated with the natural world. We were created to work in sync with this world, and now we don't. People die in tornadoes like they did in Illinois. This is what it means to live in a fallen world. It means to live with these four broken relationships. But what Christ accomplishes in the cross and the empty tomb is the beginning of the healing of all four of these relationships. It is what makes it possible for us to be reconciled to God. But it also makes it possible for us to be reconciled to one another in the church. It is what makes it possible for us to come to experience intrapersonal healing, to come to wholeness and shalom and peace with ourselves. It is what enables us to be reconciled to the natural world. Get a bigger picture of salvation than the one you came into chapel with. It isn't just about you and your relationship with God. Salvation is God undoing all of these broken relationships in the world. It's putting an end to the curse. And the resurrection is good news because that's what God is doing in the resurrection. He is putting an end to the curse. It's like, it's like June 6, 1944, when the Allies invade France. It's the beginning of the end of the Second World War. That war continues for another good year. But the end of the war takes place on D-Day. It's like what happens in Lion, Witch, in a Wardrobe. When, when Aslan emerges the next morning as more alive than he was the day before is the beginning of the end of the witch's hold. This is why winter starts to melt. Because the end has come. It's going to be a little while before that victory works its way all the way out. But the end has come. And listen, that's where we are right now. That's where we are right now. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, you can come into a relationship with God. Because Jesus has come out from the tomb, you can come into a deeper relationship with other people. You can experience true community, the effects of the curse being minimized in that fellowship. You can come to peace with yourself, and you can come to exercise the stewardship that God has entrusted you with over the natural world. That's because of the resurrection. That's why it's such good news. But that's not all. It isn't just forgiveness from sin and victory over sin. It's victory over death. Paul makes that very clear in this passage. I want to look at a couple passages here. If, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 24, and then Philippians 3.20. Look at what Paul says here, and remember the song we sang. Look at what Paul says here about the victory that God gives us over death. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of, to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, Paul says, and Christ, through his resurrection, puts an end to the power of death. This is what makes the resurrection such good news. One more passage on this. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, and here's where it becomes 
more real to us. Because Christ rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead. This is what Paul says in Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by a power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. The resurrection changes everything. Listen to what Paul says at the very end of this chapter, verses 54 through 57. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, are you with me? Do you understand that the resurrection is really incredibly life-changing, life-altering news? If you do, say amen. amen. Good. So why isn't it making more of a difference? That's the question I'm wondering about. The resurrection was life-changing news for the early church. They said, this is it. This is the moment we were looking for. This changes everything. But I'm pretty sure, having grown up in the church, that Easter Sunday having passed, the last we'll hear about the resurrection is, oh, maybe another 51 weeks. Even though every Sunday when we meet, it's in honor of the resurrection. It'll be another 51 weeks before we talk about it. Something doesn't seem right there. I'm not just talking about when we preach on on resurrection, I'm talking about living out the implications of this. So I got to wondering, why is it? If the resurrection is so important, why is it that we as Christians don't focus more attention on the resurrection? And it was just a few thoughts came to mind. One is, we have too small a definition of sin. For us, sin, forgiveness from sin, we get our ticket punched, we know we're going to heaven, Put it in our pocket. Every Easter we take it out. Thank God we've got the ticket and put it back. Now, if that's all you think about in terms of salvation, then you don't really need much attention on resurrection. You just need to feel in your pocket and make sure you still got your ticket. Stay with me. But if you have a Bible-sized definition of salvation, then you need to put a little bit more attention on resurrection. If you really believe that the resurrection changes your relationship with your roommate, you need to think about the resurrection a little more than you do right now. If you really believe that the resurrection can give you a better understanding and appreciation for your body as you have it, then you need to think about the resurrection a little bit more. You follow me? So if your definition of salvation is too small, so is your recollection of the resurrection. But if your definition of salvation is Bible-sized, then you need to think about the resurrection. I think there's a more sobering reason why the resurrection is neglected. And it has something to do with, uh, with our, what we're doing for God. You see... If what we're doing for God 
can be done without God's help, then we don't need the incomparably great power of the resurrection. We like to make fun of tree huggers, people who put so much emphasis on the environment, when we're the worst tree huggers around. What I mean by that is God is calling us out onto the branch where he is, calling us out into the deep water, but we're too scared to go. We're hugging that tree for all it's worth. We don't want to be out on a limb with God. That's too scary. Well, listen, if that's all you're going to attempt, if you're just going to hang by the tree and not get out on a limb where God is and not do those things, you know he's calling you to do. You know he's calling you to take up those challenges in your life. You know he's calling you to deal with those habits and those thoughts and those actions. You know he's calling you out into deep water after you graduate here in a few days. You know it. Hey, if that's where you are, you don't need much resurrection power. There's not much going to happen to you here by the tree. But if you'll get out here on a limb with God, you're going to need all the resurrection power you can get. Here's another reason I think we don't pay much attention to the resurrection. Because we don't spend much time with the resurrected Christ. Can I just point out that it was not the resurrection itself which made a difference in the disciples? It was meeting the resurrected Christ that made a difference for the disciples. He had already risen Sunday morning before daybreak. Sunday night, they're huddled, frightened, terrified in their room. Christ was risen, made no difference. And that's where some of us are. Yeah, yeah, he's risen. He's risen indeed. Not making any difference. Can I just suggest that maybe the problem is it's been a while since you've met the resurrected Christ? I don't mean seeing his face on a potato chip. <laughs> I'm not talking about anything spooky. But when's the last time you stopped and, and considered the fact that Jesus Christ is closer to you than the person waiting in line for Baldwin? When's the last time you realized that the empty chair across from you at that table in Macon is not empty. How long has it been since you came into chapel and realized that he was here first and he stayed the whole time and he's moving up and down these aisles through the power of his Holy Spirit and getting closer to us than we can imagine. See, if you, if you have an understanding of Christ that's that real and that's that present and that relevant, then you got to have a resurrection. Because if you don't have a resurrection, we know where he is. But if you got a resurrection, you never know where he is. Except you do. I told you Wednesday... I've told you every time I've talked to you. Theology is the most relevant thing. So, no surprise, Paul gets to the end of his message here 
soaring into the clouds in theology and landing with a thud right at the land of where it counts. And that's verse 58. Look what he says. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Here's where it all comes down. Brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Sometimes we're moved by stuff from within us. We're pressured by fears from within us to stay close to the tree trunk, to accept the life we think we've been given rather than to accept the life we've been offered by him. Some of you are here this morning and you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And to be perfectly honest about it, you're more comfortable with what you know your life to be than what you think he'll do with the life if you give it to him. There are fears within. And there are pressures from without. Culture all the time is trying to shape us in directions that we ought not to go. Telling us that the most important period in your life is while you're living. And ignoring the fact that the time that we have on this earth is only a fraction of the time we will spend. You ought to go to a college that teaches you how to die not a college that teaches you how to live. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Don't let the winds of culture move you. Don't let the fears from within you move you. Stand firm. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Talking to some of you who are graduating here in a few days. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. God has called you into this world to be an agent of change. A change of eternal consequence. A change that puts the resurrection to work in the lives of this world. A change that goes about reconciling human to human. A change that goes about reconciling human to self. A change that goes about reconciling humans to the natural world. Pushing back the borders of sin that have encroached upon God's kingdom. Pushing back the borders of disease and ignorance and famine and want. That's our responsibility. We're called to be stewards in this world partnering with God lessening the effects of sin in this world always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord some of you've been privileged to be called into ministry you too always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord and here's why because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain what you do for this resurrected Christ will last for eternity. Nothing else will. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's stand together and recite the creed as we close. 
And when we get to that section about Christ rising from the dead, don't yawn, don't lean back, lean in. This makes all the difference. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, I ask that you would fill these students, staff, faculty, visitors with the resurrection power. If they came in with too small an understanding of salvation, have them leave it behind and take a bigger one out. And if they came in with a fear that keeps them too close to the tree trunk, draw them out on that limb with you. And if it's been a while since they met the resurrected Christ, just remind them where you are. Let this be a place where the resurrection makes a difference. In Christ's name, amen.